0: Captain Sharkey, How the Governor of St. Kitts Came Home by Arthur Conan Doyle, 1859-1930 to This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Peter Tomlinson Captain Sharkey, How the Governor of St. Kitts Came Home When the great wars of the Spanish succession had been brought to an end by the Treaty of Utrecht, the vast number of privateers which had been fitted out by the contending parties found their occupation gone. Some took to the more peaceful but less lucrative ways of ordinary commerce. Others were absorbed into the fishing fleets, and a few of the more reckless hoisted the jolly roger at the mizzen and the bloody flag at the main declaring a private war upon their own account against the whole human race with mixed crews recruited from every nation they scoured the seas disappearing occasionally to careen in some lonely inlet or putting in for a debauch at some outlying port where they dazzled the inhabitants by their lavishness and horrified them by their brutalities on the coromandel coast at madagascar in the african waters and above all in the west indian and american seas the pirates were a constant menace with an insolent luxury they would regulate their depredations by the comfort of the seasons harrowing new england in the summer and dropping south again to the tropical islands in the winter they were the more to be dreaded because they had none of that discipline and restraint which made their predecessors the buccaneers both formidable and respectable these ishmaels of the sea rendered an account to no man and treated their prisoners according to the drunken whim of the moment flashes of grotesque generosity alternated with longer stretches of inconceivable ferocity and the skipper who fell into their hands might find himself dismissed with his cargo after serving as boon companion in some hideous debauch or might sit at his cabin table with his own nose and his lips served up with pepper and salt in front of him it took a stout seaman in those days to ply his calling in the caribbean gulf such a man was captain john scarrow of the ship morning star and yet he breathed a long sigh of relief when he heard the splash of the falling anchor and swung at his moorings within a hundred yards of the guns of the citadel of basseterre st Kitts was his final port of call and early next morning his bowsprit would be pointed for old England. He had had enough of those rubber-haunted seas. Ever since he had left Maracaibo upon the main, with his full landing of sugar and red pepper, he had winced at every topsail which glimmered over the violet edge of the tropical sea. He had coasted up the windward islands, touching here and there, and assailed continually by stories of villainy and outrage captain sharkey of the twenty-gun pirate bark happy delivery had passed down the coast and had littered it with gutted vessels and with murdered men dreadful anecdotes were current of his grim pleasantries and of his inflexible ferocity from the bahamas to the main his coal-black bark with the ambiguous name had been freighted with death and many things which are worse than death so nervous was captain scarrow with his new full-rigged ship and her full and valuable lading that he struck out to the west as far as bird's island to be out of the usual track of commerce and yet even in those solitary waters he had been unable to shake off sinister traces of captain sharkey one morning they had raised a single skiff adrift upon the face of the ocean its only occupant was a delirious seaman who yelled hoarsely as they hoisted him aboard and showed a dried-up tongue like a black and wrinkled fungus at the back of his mouth water and nursing soon transformed him into the strongest and smartest sailor of the ship he was from marblehead in new england it seemed and was the sole survivor of a schooner which had been scuttled by the dreadful sharkey for a week hiram Evanson, for that was his name had been adrift beneath the tropical sun sharkey had ordered the mangled remains of his late captain to be thrown into the boat as provisions for the voyage but the seamen had at once committed them to the deep lest the temptation should be more than he could bear he had lived upon his own huge frame until at the last moment the morning star had found him in that madness which is the precursor of such a death it was no bad find for captain scarrow for with a short-handed crew such a seaman as this big New Englander was a prize worth having he vowed that he was the only man whom captain sharkey had ever placed under an obligation now that they lay under the guns of the bassin All danger from the pirate was at an end, and yet the thought of him lay heavily upon the seaman's mind as he watched the agent's boat shooting out from the custom-house quay. "'I'll lay you a wager, Morgan,' said he to the first mate, "'that the agent will speak of Sharkey in the first hundred words that pass his lips. "'Well, Captain, I'll have you a silver dollar and chance it,' said the rough old Bristol man beside him. The negro rowers shot the boat alongside, and the linen-clad steersman sprang up the ladder. "'Welcome, Captain Scarrow," he cried. "'Have you heard about Sharky?' The captain grinned at the mate. "'What devilry has he been up to now?' he asked. "'Devilry? You've not heard, then? Why, we've got him safe under lock and key here at Bassentere. He was tried last Wednesday, and he is to be hanged tomorrow morning.' Captain and mate gave a shout of joy, which an instant later was taken up by the crew. Discipline was forgotten as they scrambled up through the break of the poop to hear the news. The New Englander was in the front of them, with a radiant face turned up to heaven, for he came of the Puritan stock. "Sharky to be hanged!" he cried. "You don't know, Master Agent, if they lack a hangman, do you?" "'Stand back!' cried the mate, whose outraged sense of discipline was even stronger than his interest at the news. "'I'll pay that dollar, Captain Scarrow, with the lightest heart that I ever paid a wager yet. "'How came the villain to be taken? "'Why, as to that, he became more than his own comrades could abide, "'and they took such a horror of him that they would not have him on the ship. "'So they marooned him upon the little mangles, "'to the south of the Mysterioso Bank, "'and there he was found by a portobello trader, "'who brought him in. "'There was talk of sending him to Jamaica to be tried, "'but our good little governor, Sir Charles Ewan, "'would not hear of it. "'He's my meat,' said he, "'and I claim the cooking of it. "'If you can stay till tomorrow morning at ten, "'you'll see the point swinging.' "'I wish I could,' said the captain wistfully.' "'but I am sadly behind time now. "'I should start with the evening tide.' "'That you can't do,' said the agent with decision. "'The Governor is going back with you.' "'The Governor?' "'Yes, he had a dispatch from Government "'to return without delay. "'The flyboat that brought it has gone on to Virginia. "'So Sir Charles has been waiting for you, "'as I told him you would do before the rains.' "'Well, well,' cried the captain in some perplexity. I'm a plain seaman, and I don't know much of governors and baronets and their ways. I don't remember that I ever so much as spoke to one. But if it's in King George's service, and he asks a cast in the Morning Star as far as London, I'll do what I can for him. There's my own cabin he can have and welcome. As to the cooking, it's lobscutes and salmagundi six days in the week, "'but he can bring his own cookable with him "'if he thinks our galley is too rough for his taste.' "'You need not trouble your mind, Captain Scarrow,' said the agent. "'Sir Charles is in weak health just now, "'only clear of a quarter and ague, "'and it is likely he will keep his cabby most of the voyage. "'Dr. LaRue said he would have sunk "'had the hanging of Sharkey not put fresh life in him. "'He has a great spirit in him, though. "'You must not blame him if he is somewhat short in his speech.' He may say what he likes and do what he likes so long as he does not come athwart my horse when I am working the ship, said the captain. He is governor of St. Kitts, but I am governor of the Morning Star. And via his leave I must weigh with the first tide, for I owe a duty to my employer, just as he does to King George. He can scarce be ready tonight, for he has many things to set in order before he leaves. The early morning tide, then. Very good. I shall send his things aboard to-night, and he will follow them to-morrow early, if I can prevail upon him to leave St. Kitt's without seeing Sharky do the rogue's hornpipe. His own orders were instant, so it may be that he will come at once. It is likely that Dr. LaRousse may attend him upon the journey. Left to themselves, the captain and mate made the best preparations which they could for their illustrious passenger. The largest cabin was turned out and adorned in his honour, and orders were given by which barrels of fruit and some cases of wine should be brought off to vary the plain food of an ocean-going trader. In the evening the governor's baggage began to arrive, great iron-bound and ant-proof trunks, and official tin packing-cases with other strange-shaped packages, which suggested the cocked hat or sword within and then there came a note with a heraldic device upon the big red seal to say that Sir Charles Ewin made his compliments to Captain Scarrow and that he hoped to be with him in the morning as early as his duties and his infirmities would permit. He was as good as his word, for the first grey of dawn had hardly begun to deepen into pink when he was brought alongside and climbed with some difficulty up the ladder. The captain had heard the governor was an eccentric, but he was hardly prepared for the curious figure who came limping feebly down his quarter-deck, his steps supported by a thick bamboo cane. He wore a ramillies wig, all twisted into little tails like a poodle's coat, and cut so low across his brow that the large green glasses which covered his eyes looked as if they were hung from it. A fierce beak of a nose, very long and very thin, cut the air in front of him. His ague had caused him to swathe his throat and chin with a broad linen cravat, and he wore a loose damask-powdering gown secured by a cord round the waist. As he advanced he carried his masterful nose high in the air, but his head turned slowly from side to side in the helpless manner of the purblind, and he called in a high, querulous voice for the captain. "'You have my things?' he asked. "'Yes, Sir Charles.' have you wine aboard i have ordered five cases sir and tobacco there is a keg of trinidad you play a hand of piquet possibly well sir then off anchor and to sea there was a fresh westerly wind so by the time the sun was fairly through the morning haze the ship was hulled down from the islands the decrepit governor still limped the deck with one guiding hand upon the quarter-rail, you are on government service now, captain. Said he, They are counting the days till I come to Westminster. I promise you, have you all that she will carry every inch, sir Charles? Keep her so if you blow the sails out of her. I fear, Captain Scarrow, that you will find a blind and broken man a poor companion for your voyage. I am honoured in enjoying your excellency's society said the captain but i am sorry that your eyes should be so afflicted yes indeed it is the cursed glare of the sun on the white streets of basseterre which has gone far to burn them out i heard also that you had been plagued by a quartan ague yes i have a pyrexy which has reduced me much we had set aside a cabin for your surgeon "'Ah, the rascal! There was no budging him, "'for he has a snug business amongst the merchants. "'But hark! He raised his ring-covered hand in the air. "'From far astern there came the low, deep thunder of cannon. "'It's from the island!' cried the captain in astonishment. "'Can it be a signal for us to put back?' "'The governor laughed. "'You have heard that Sharky, the pirate, is to be hanged this morning.' i ordered the batteries to salute when the rascal was kicking his last so that i might know of it out at sea there's an end sharky cried the captain and the crew took up the cry as they gathered in little knots upon the deck and stared back at the low purple line of the vanishing land it was a cheering omen for their start across the western ocean and the invalid governor found himself a popular man on board for it was generally understood that but for his insistence upon an immediate trial and sentence the villain might have played upon some more venal judge and so escaped at dinner that day sir charles gave many anecdotes of the deceased pirate and so affable was he and so skilful in adapting his conversation to men of lower degree that captain mate and governor smoked their long pipes and drank their claret, as three good comrades should. And what figure did Sharkey cut in the dock? asked the captain. He is a man of some presence, said the governor. I had always understood that he was an ugly, sneering devil, remarked the mate. Well, I dare say he could look ugly upon occasion, said the governor. I have heard a new Bedford whaleman say that he could not forget his eyes, said Captain Scarrow they were of the lightest flimsy blue with red-rimmed lids was that not so said charles alas my own eyes will not permit me to know much of those of others but i remember now that the adjutant general said that he had such an eye as you describe and added that the jury was so foolish as to be visibly discomposed when it was turned upon them it is well for them that he is dead for he was a man who would have never forgotten injury and if he had laid hands upon any one of them he would have stuffed him with straw and hung him for a figurehead the idea seemed to amuse the governor for he broke suddenly into a high neighing laugh and the two seamen laughed also but not so heartily for they remembered that sharkey was not the last pirate who sailed the western seas and that as grotesque a fate might come to be their own another bottle was brooched to drink for a pleasant voyage and the governor would drink just one other on top of it so that the seamen were glad at last to stagger off the one to his watch and the other to his bunk but when after his 4 hours' spell the mate came down again he was amazed to see the governor in his ramillies wig his glasses and his powdering gown still seated sedately at the lonely table with his reeking pipe and six black bottles by his side "'I have drunk with the governor of St. Kitts when he was sick,' said he, "'and God forbid that I should ever try to keep pace with him when he is well.' The voyage of the Morning Star was a successful one, and in about three weeks she was at the mouth of the British Channel. From the first day the infirm governor had begun to recover his strength, and before they were half-way across the at he was, save only for his eyes, as well as any man upon the ship.' Those who uphold the nourishing qualities of wine might point to him in triumph, for never a night passed that he did not repeat the performance of his first one, and yet he would be out upon deck in the early morning as fresh and brisk as the best of them, peering about with his weak eyes and asking questions about the sail and the rigging, for he was anxious to learn the ways of the sea, and he made up for the deficiency of his eyes by obtaining leave from the captain that the New England seaman he who had been cast away in the boat, should lead him about, and above all that he should sit beside him when he played cards and count the number of the pips, for unaided he could not tell the king from the knave. It was natural that this Evanson should do the governor's willing service, since the one was the victim of the vile Sharky and the other was his avenger. One could see that It was a pleasure to the big American to lend his arm to the invalid, and at night he would stand with all respect behind the chair in the cabin and lay his great stub-nailed forefinger upon the card which he should play. Between them there was little in the pockets either of Captain Scarrow or of Morgan, the first mate, by the time they sighted the lizard. And it was not long before they found that all they had heard "'of the high temper of Sir Charles Ewan fell short of the mark. "'At a sign of opposition or a word of argument, "'his chin would shoot out from his caravat, "'his masterful nose would be cocked "'at a higher and more insolent angle, "'and his bamboo cane would whistle up over his shoulder. "'He cracked it once over the head of the carpenter "'when the man had accidentally jostled him on the deck.' Once, too, when there was some grumbling and talk of mutiny over the state of the provisions, he was of the opinion that they should not wait for the dogs to rise, but that they should march forward and set upon them until they had trounced the devilment out of them. "'Give me a knife and a bucket,' he cried with an oath, and could hardly be withheld from setting forth alone to deal with the spokesman of the seamen. Captain Scarrow had to remind him that though he might be only answerable to himself at St Kitts, killing became murder upon the high seas. In politics, he was, as became his official position, a stout prop of the House of Hanover, and he swore in his cups that he had never met a Jacobite without pistoling him where he stood. Yet for all this vapouring and his violence he was so good a companion with such a stream of strange anecdote and reminiscence that scarrow and morgan had never known a boy's past so pleasantly and then at length came the last day when after passing the island they had struck land again at the high white cliffs of beachy head as evening fell the ship was rolling in an oily calm a league off from winchelsea with the long dark snout of dungeness jutting out in front of her next morning they would pick up their pilot at the foreland and sir charles might meet the king's ministers at westminster before the evening the boatswain had the watch and the three friends were met for a last turn of cards in the cabin the faithful american still serving as eyes to the governor there was a good stake upon the table for the sailors had tried on this last night to win their losses back from their passenger suddenly he threw all his cards down and swept all the money into his long-flapped silken waistcoat the game's mine said he hey sir charles not so fast cried captain scarrow you have not played out the hand and we are not the losers sink you for a liar said the governor i tell you that i have played out the hand and that you are a loser he whipped off his wig and his glasses as he spoke and there was a high bald forehead and a pair of shifty blue eyes with the red rims of a bull terrier good god cried the mate it's sharky the two sailors sprang from their seats but the big american castaway had put his huge back against the cabin door and he held a pistol in each of his hands. The passenger had also laid a pistol upon the scattered cards in front of him, and he burst into his high, neighing laugh. "'Captain Sharky is the name, gentlemen,' said he, "'and this is roaring Ned Galloway, the quartermaster of the happy delivery. "'We made it hot, and so they marooned us, "'me on a dry Tortuga Cay, and him on an oarless boat.' You dogs, you poor, fond, water-hearted dogs, we hold you at the end of our pistols. You may shoot or you may not, cried Scarrow, striking his hand on the breast of his frieze jacket It's my last breath, Sharkey. I tell you that you are a bloody rogue and a miscreant, with a hold for a hellfire in store for you. There's a man of spirit, and one of my own kidney, and he's going to make a pretty death of it. "'cried Sharky. "'There's no one aft save the man at the wheel, "'so you may keep your breath, for you'll need it soon. "'Is the dinghy astern, Ned?' "'Ay, ay, Captain.' "'And the other boat scuttled? "'I board them all in three places.' "'Then we shall have to leave you, Captain Scarrow. "'You look as if you hadn't quite got your bearings yet. "'Is there anything you'd like to ask me?' "'I believe you're the devil himself,' cried the captain. "'Where is the governor of St. Kitts?' "'When I last saw him, his excellency was in bed with his throat cut. "'When I broke prison, I learned from my friends— "'for Captain Sharkey has those who love him in every port— "'that the governor was starting for Europe under a master who had never seen him. "'I climbed his veranda and paid him the little debt that I owed him— "'Then I came aboard to you, with such of his things as I had need of, "'and a pair of glasses to hide these tell-tale eyes of mine, "'and I have ruffled it, as a governor should. "'Now, Ned, you can go to work upon them.' "'Help, help, watch ahoy!' yelled the mate, "'but the butt of the pirate's pistol crashed down on his head, "'and he dropped like a pithed ox. Scarrow rushed for the door,' "'but the sentinel clasped his hand over his mouth "'and threw his other arm round his waist. "'No use, Master Scarrow,' said Sharkey, "'Let us see you go down on your knees and beg for your life.' "'I'll see you,' cried Scarrow, shaking his mouth clear. "'Twist his arm round, Ned. Now will you?' "'No, not if you twist it off. "'Put an inch of your knife into him. "'You may put six inches, and then I won't.' Sink me, but I like his spirit!' cried Sharkey. "'Put your knife in your pocket, Ned. "'You've saved your skin, Scurro, "'and it's a pity so stout a man should not take to the only trade "'where a pretty fellow can pick up a living. "'You must be born for no common death, Scarrow, "'since you have lain at my mercy and lived to tell the story. "'Time up, Ned. "'To the stove, Captain. "'Tut, tut, there's a fire in the stove.' "'None of your rover-tricks, Ned Galloway, unless they are called for. "'I'll let you know which one of us, too, is captain and which is quartermaster. "'Now make him fast to the table.' "'Nay, I thought you meant to roast him,' said the quartermaster. "'You surely do not mean to let him go.' "'If you and I were marooned on a Bahama Cay, Ned Galloway, "'it is still for me to command and for you to obey. "'Sink you for a villain.' do you dare to question my orders nay nay captain sharkey not so hot sir said the quartermaster and lifting scarrow like a child he laid him on the table with the quick dexterity of a seaman he tied his spread-eagled hands and feet with a rope which was passed underneath and gagged him securely with the long cravat which used to adorn the chin of the governor of st kitts now captain scarrow we must take our leave of you said the pirate if I had half a dozen of my brisk boys at my heels, I should have had your cargo and your ship. But Roaring Ned could not find a foremast hand with the spirit of a mouse. I see there are some small craft about, and we shall get one of them. When Captain Sharkey has a boat, he can get a smack. When he has a smack, he can get a brig. When he has a brig, he can get a bark. And when he has a bark he will soon have a full-rigged ship of his own. So make haste into London town, or I may be coming back after all for the morning star. Captain Scarrow heard the key turn in the lock, and they left the cabin. Then, as he strained at his bonds, he heard their footsteps pass up the companion, and along the quarter-deck to where the dinghy hung in the stern. Then, still struggling and writhing, he heard the creak of the falls and the splash of the boat in the water in a mad fury he tore and dragged at his ropes until at last with flayed wrists and ankles he rolled from the table sprang over the dead mate kicked his way through the closed door and rushed hatless on to the deck ahoy peterson armitage wilson he screamed cutlasses and pistols clear away the longboat clear away the gig sharkey the pirate is in yonder dinghy Whistle up the Larboard watch, boatswain, and tumble into the boats all hands. Down splashed the longboat and down splashed the gig, but in an instant the coxswains and crews were swarming up the falls onto the deck once more. The boats are scuttled, they cried. They are leaking like a sieve. The captain gave a bitter curse. He had been beaten and outwitted at every point. Above was a cloudless starlic sky, with neither wind nor the promise of it. The sails flapped idly in the moonlight. Far away lay a fishing smack, with the men clustering over their net. Close to them was the little dinghy, dipping and lifting over the shining swell. "'They are dead men!' cried the captain. "'A shout altogether, boys, to warn them of their danger.' But it was too late. At that very moment the dinghy shot into the shadow of the fishing boat. There were two rapid pistol shots, a scream, and then another pistol shot followed by silence the clustering fishermen had disappeared and then suddenly as the first puffs of a land breeze came out from the sussex shore the boom swung out the mainsail filled and the little craft crept out with her nose to the atlantic end of captain sharkey by arthur conan doyle recording by peter Tomlinson.